Start that up. Let's uh, pray in uh, preparation for the message this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us uh, today as I as I share the word. I pray that you would uh, be with the folks who are listening, who are hearing hearing me talk today, Lord. That that they wouldn't hear from me, but that they'd hear from you, Lord. That you would speak to them, that you would touch their lives, that you would um, that you would help them to know you more, Lord. I pray that everything that might get in the way today, our worries, our our thinking about you know the the things we got to get done, and and our honey do lists, and our our um, parties and and our frustrations and everything else, Lord, that you put it aside in favor of us, um, in favor of us hearing from you. In Jesus' name, Amen. So uh, we are continuing to work our way through the enemy within. Uh, James is here this morning, and so I think did he leave? No, uh, he was the one who recommended I read the book that this sermon series is is being stolen from. And so if you don't like it, he's to blame. Um, <laughs> So, you know, just keep that in mind. Um, the, uh, as we're working through this, we, we've been talking a lot about sin. And I, I, I want to, before we dive into this topic, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, about love, true love, um, <laughs> uh, which is from something I'm not sure what. Uh, the, the, so I, I've been married for 19, almost 20 years, and my wife's not in here. Um, so I can I can talk. Um, hopefully she won't go back and listen. Um, <laughs> I, I've been married for for almost 20 years, and I, I I've discovered something that is that is sort of an inevitable reality of being married. Um, when I first met my wife, um, I remember the first time I held her hand, and it was like electricity ran through my arm. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I I remember our first kiss, and like my heart practically jumping out of my chest, and I remember. Um, she was in uh, Texas for the majority of our our time uh, um, before I moved down there. Like we we can you know met on the internet, um, which is why we tell folks regularly that nothing good comes out of internet relationships. Um, but she was trying to go to Montana, like school in Montana, and and on her way home after she figured out that the uh, her scholarships weren't going to work out, I drove out and I met her, and that's a really cool story. But like. There is this period of time when you first meet where everything is exciting and everything is electric and everything is is um, all about the other person. You know what I'm talking about? When when you find yourself talking about you know your 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 uh, your you know boyfriend or girlfriend or, or new wife or what have you and and just talking about them like people begin to roll their eyes because they're like man I'm tired of hearing about it um, and you get excited just thinking of them. I remember I I was. When we were talking, we were, again, met on the Internet, and so we would talk on, online. And uh, when we would talk online, I remember I was working in downtown Chicago. I was going to classes in downtown Chicago. I was going to classes in the suburbs of Chicago, and I was sitting up and talking to Jessica for four or five hours every night. I, I remember once, I, I, like on more than one occasion, I, I would fall asleep in front of the keyboard because I'd be so tired, but I, you know, fitting that time in to, to talk to her was the biggest deal, right? And, and um, it, was, it was such a big deal. The first time uh, we met, though, I've got some pictures. Uh, this is the first time we, we met. This is the first day we met. Um, and it's actually a selfie before selfies were a thing. Um, and and uh, Jessica, I mean, she's still the most beautiful woman I've ever known. Her smile just always still makes my heart skip a beat and 
And, uh, but I don't, I, I, I will admit very openly, it's not like it was when I was 20, right? Um, and that's for better or for worse, right? Because, like, you mature and you grow, but it's really hard to, like, maintain that first flutter and that first excitement. And a lot of people, if they're married for a little while, the, the um, you know, you can't, you know, you have to be right by me all the time thing, and I've got I've to have you as a part of my day or my day is incomplete. It begins to wane. And it's very easy over the course of years for that to disappear entirely and for you to become... In fact, there's a theory about long-term successful marriage that is incorrect in my estimation that says that for people to be married for a long time successfully, they have to accept that they're not going to be in love and that they're going to live in the same house and put up with each other. And if they can get to that point, they'll be fine. Um, and it's this, you know, this, this guy, he says, well, you know, you develop your own hobbies, your own friends, and you just always agree you're coming home. And that, you know, that's the best way. But, it, but it's a terrible way to live, isn't it? Um, because after a little while, like, there's this part of you that desires to, to, to be connected to the other person. This picture is in the uh, Field Museum, I think, or the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. My parents on their first date went there, and they have a picture in that car from their first date. And, and I, I got this picture when I was sure I was probably going to marry her. And uh, um, it's, yeah, I, I love that picture. It's usually in color. I don't know why she picked a black and white. This is our wedding day. I, um, I, I, some of you all are married. And I, I'm not sure if you recall, I don't know many people who consider their wedding day to be a terrible day, right? You're, you're at each other's hip. Like, everything is all about y'all. There's all kinds of stuff happening. You've agreed to die together. Um, you've... <laughs> what? Well, <I, I, laughs> it's a Bill Cosby line. I stole that. Um, <laughs> the, the, I, I mean, there, there is this, this whole, like, you know, my world, you are now a part of my world, and this is a big deal thing. And, and I'm starting with this stuff for a reason. Um, as we talk about sin, as we talk about the things that, that uh, the flesh and how the flesh tends to pull us away, um, one of the things that the Bible talks about a couple times, and actually it's a recurring analogy um, throughout the Old Testament and the New, is this idea that we're supposed to be like in love with God. I mean, I mean the, like you read Hosea is one of the most powerful examples of that, where God compares Israel to, a, to a, a, like a wife that's run off to cheat on him. You know, and how he still loves her, but she's, you know, betrayed him. And, you know, we, th- there's this whole, like, God loves his people thing. And, and it's often compared to romantic love because romantic love is powerful, isn't it? I mean, it, it has this, this ability to grab us in ways that nothing else seems to be able to. I mean, it is, it is really something. And, and um, we're going to talk about first love, you know, in relation to our relationship with God. And, and because it's, it's sometimes hard to think of God that way, but it's easy to think of, like, the early days with my wife when, you know, I remember like we, we you know, when we were first dating and, and we couldn't be apart. You know what I mean? You know, in that first few months of marriage where you like want to be in the same place all the time. Like it's, I don't even want to be away from you, you know, like this, this whole element of it. And this is, this is what God describes our love for him when we start. Um, and we're going to dig into that. Our series so far, we've talked a lot about the flesh and how the flesh fights us and how the flesh draws us away how it deadens us inside, how it makes us like callous to sin, how it, it helps us sort of give up. Um, and we're going to work into that a little more as it relates to our first love for God, like, like our first love for God. And the first love for God, by the way, is really powerful. It's part of what draws us back over and over and over again. And like Paul describes it, our mind desires one thing and our flesh desires another, and it's sort of this tug of war. 
Um, I'll come back to that. Um, but in reality, we're called to holiness. Holiness is sort of this exclusive, set-apart relationship with God. When I, when I met my wife, the idea that um, there was ever a boyfriend before me was, was horrifying. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think she has prom pictures somewhere that I, I think I've thrown them all away in our collection, you know, where she's in this dress and she, she looks stunning, and then there's some loser with her. Um, and, and I mean, I mean, she's like 17, you know, it's, it's not a big deal, but it's still, you know, there's this part of me that's jealous. She's mine. Right. Um, I, I like, we're called to that with God. Like we're called to purify ourselves and to be wholly his and to belong to him completely, to be, to be, you know, nothing else, no rebellion, no nothing, just us and him. Um, and this first love is this passion for that, that we have out of the gate. Uh, revelation uses, uh, is where we get the, oh, for crying out loud, the app froze. Um, so I'm going to restart that. I'm going to keep talking, and you all aren't going to be able to look at it on the screen, so this would be a good time to look it up uh, in the Bible in front of you. We're going to be doing Revelation 2 and 3, two different verses here. The first one is uh, verses 4 and 5, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Um, Yet I hold this against you. Now what happens is, in the book of Revelation, it starts out with, um, Jesus showing up and talking to John, and John is sitting in a prison cell on the island of Patmos, and he's an old man, and he's, you know, this is like 100 AD that this book was written, so it's well after the events of the majority of, like, the Gospels and stuff like that. That's all ended, and John has lived his life following Jesus and everything else. Um, oh, gosh. Now what happened? Ah! So I may have to talk just straight off my notes. Um, and so he is, he is there, and he's saying... Um, Jesus is talking to John, and he's telling John, write these letters to these churches. I want you to send these letters to these churches, and I want you to let them know the following things. And some, he says, hey, you're doing good. Hold the course. Some, he says, hey, you need to work on this. And in this particular part, it is, um, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand refers to this, uh, this, um, like this stance they have, like the fact that they are the light of the world and Christ is in them. I'm going to remove this from you and you're going to be abandoned. Like, and the warning is, come back to your first love. And as I think about this verse, like the thing that comes to mind, um, when I first became a Christian, I was uh, probably in ninth grade, I think. It's been a long time. Um, not that long. I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> but I, I was in ninth grade, and I remember I got this hardcover Bible, one of the NIV brown hardcover Bibles that's in every church in the entire country. And I, I read that Bible through so many times that the cover fell off. Um, I read it so many times and underlined and wrote in it so much that the thing was about twice as thick when I finally got done with it. Um, I, I read the book of Matthew. I remember reading it and not understanding a darn word I read and thinking this makes no sense to me. And I asked a pastor, like, uh, pastor Mike was the name of the first pastor. I, I, after I like decided to follow Jesus and, and he said to me, nope, you just keep reading it. It doesn't make sense now, but the Holy Spirit will like embed in you and you'll begin to understand and it'll change you. And I've given the same advice a hundred times, even though it frustrated me to begin with, because as it turns out, it's true. You know, I, I eat, I ate, I breathed, I, I read, I, everything. I would go to church, and like, this is a Lutheran Missouri Synod church. Um, have any of y'all ever been in one? 
They're uh, formal. Would be a good way to put it. And actually, I love Lutherans. I love the Missouri Synod. I have a lot to, a positive stuff to say about them. I, I, they, one of the things they do that we don't do is they recite creeds. And I remember sitting there, and we'd repeat these creeds. You know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. This is 40 years ago, or like 30, uh, 15 years ago. <laughs> and, and I can still, most of them, man, you give me the first two words, and I'm on it, Right? And I remember I'd recite these things, and I'd get excited saying them. And there was a part of me that would look around and say, why does it look like most of these people are, you know, sort of repeating a litany? Like, why is it that most of them look bored saying this? Because I was excited. You know, like we'd do the Psalms responsive readings, you know, and, and, and you'd say one line, and they'd say one line. And I remember being excited. I remember singing the songs, like, to the organ. And these are Lutheran songs, so they are not, like, chorusy. Um, and I love Lutheran songs, but like they were not chorusy, and I got excited singing the songs. You know why? Because like I found out that Jesus died for me, and I found out that like I wasn't this kind of you know reject loser that had no value in the world and everything else. Like somebody loved me that much, like and that I was forever going to be somebody that God watched out for and that God took care of. And no matter how bad I screwed up, God was always going to pull me back in. Like I, I love God so much for that. Like, I, I, you know, even talking about it now, I get a, a little excited. Like, it is it's exciting. And I, I remember, like, that where I couldn't read enough and I couldn't study enough and I started reading, you know, reading Christian books. Like, I, I anyway, like, I, I read all the time just trying to learn everything I could because I knew, like, the more I learn about who Jesus is, the, you know, the more I know him. And I wanted that so bad. And then there was a point in time where I did that less. Right? And then there was a point in time where I did it less, and a point in time where I did it less, and less, and less. And then after several years, I read my Bible a lot less. And then I started doing those responsive readings the way everybody else was. You know, because I've said it a million times. I know. You know, I've said it, I've said it, I've said it. But, like, that's tragic, isn't it? Because I had this passionate, excited love for God, and it just sort of tapered. Now, there's some good and bad in that. I don't think we should all walk around, you know, I mean, that would be wonderful if we could, but it is really hard to do. It's something that, that, that I don't think we manage well. We're, we're going to have highs and lows and ups and downs. Like, that's part of being human. It's part of being fallen. But, like, like, looking back on it, there's a part of me that wishes I could go back to those days, you know, where getting up on Sunday morning wasn't, I need to get my pants pressed, I got to get my shirt ironed, I got to get the kids dressed, I got to make sure that there's no cereal, you know, on my clothes because Titus dumped it on me, and I got to make sure I got to be there on time, I got to review the sermon, I got to make sure I'm not going to say anything too offensive, Um, I got to, I know it never happens. Um, But like all of these concerns, like they invade, and that first love, that excitement. There were years during my time as a youth pastor where I don't think I sang a single worship song on Sunday morning. Because I was so busy running around and taking care of stuff. Isn't that crazy? Like, I got paid to go to church and I didn't sing. Um, the second spot here is, uh, To the angel of the church of Sardis I write, uh, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished and in the, in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. 
Um, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. And so, like he's, this other church, he says to him, hey, you were nailing it. You were doing everything. You were on it. You were excited. You were, you were, like, your faith was passionate, and it turned into these works, and it's dying now, and you're not running the whole race. Um, I, I love running uh, with groups of people. Ever, any of y'all ever run in a race? It, like, like <laughs> some of y'all, um, the first 200 yards, you're in a big pack of people who are sprinting, and the smartest thing to do is slow down and wait for everybody else to run out of gas, and then you just sort of cruise by them. Because, like, for the most part, it's easy to run sprint right out of the gate. And guess what? You don't win, the mile, like, the, the five-mile race in the first 100 yards. You don't. Um, and he's saying, listen, you're running out of gas. Kick it up a notch. Get to it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Um, this is that first love. Remain passionate. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. Um, so... How strong is the flesh? Um, you know, as we talk about this first love thing and how powerful it is, and love is powerful, right? Love is a really powerful thing. Love is something, actually, I, I'm reading uh, The Way to Glory for the second time right now, and it is a great book. Um, there's this great line in, in there where he's talking about World War II and the, the fighting and stuff, and he makes this interesting point. He said, no soldier ever ran into enemy gunfire because he hated his enemy. He runs because he loves the people that he has behind him, Right? He loves his brothers in combat. He loves his family at home. He loves the people he's trying to rescue. He loves these other people. Like, we die um, for things that we love, not because we hate something. Though hatred will kill you. Um, The reality is that that love that we carry makes us strong. Um, The strength of the flesh, like, how strong is it? Well, what God gives us to sustain that love and to keep it going Um, So Christ himself, this is Ephesians, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service, that the body of Christ might be built up until until we all reach unity in in the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of the people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. So God has sent all of these things, like prophets and teachers and evangelists and pastors and all of these people that surround us. And they're in this room, right? Like there are people here who have taught us. And there are people here who have shared the gospel with us and who walked with us and who spent time with us and who sat down with us when we're screwing up and like held our hand and prayed with us and helped us get upright again. We are in a room full of people like that. But like the flesh can beat that. Um, I, 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 was, I, I bought a kayak a couple weeks ago. It's like a boat. I had to look it up. Um, and I, I went out in this thing yesterday, and my idea was I'm going to go just this couple of miles between this place and this place. Jimmy helped me out here, and, and he helped me not flip over in the first 30 seconds, which is good. Um, and I said, well, you know what? This is a short trip. I'm probably going to go upriver for a little while and then come back river, right? And it, I, I got paddled out to the middle, and I turned my kayak around, which took some effort. And I spent a little bit of time getting the feel for it. And then I dug in and I paddled so hard I tipped 
the kayak from side to side and water got in. I had to drain it when I got out in the end. And I'm fighting for all I'm worth. And my arms are burning and my back is on fire and I'm breathing hard. And I look over and there's this tree right here equal with me. I said, all right, I just got to get that tree behind me. And about 10 minutes later, I look over and guess where that tree is? (laughs) Slightly ahead of me. (laughs) And I'm fighting this current because amazingly enough, the river doesn't get tired. Isn't that weird? That river with all that rain runoff, it rained a little this, and snowed a little this winter, and so the river's kind of high and it's moving fast. You can fight forever, and that it's just never going to get tired. Anybody ever struggle with an addiction and think, oh, my gosh, can you just give me a day off? Or some sort of resentment, like old anger you carry around with you that, like, you pour gas on every once in a while, and the moment it gets an opportunity, it comes firing up to get you all hot and mad and worked up and stupid, right? And it just never gets tired. Like that part of us doesn't wear out. It, it's strong and it fights and it fights. And I could have sat there all day and I would have just landed right in the spot where I took off or just downstream because I fell behind. Um, I never would have gotten there because it's that strong. Like God gives us all of this, but it is fighting. We are in a battle where we're fighting against ourselves and our enemy is powerful. Um, and that's why we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard that we do not drift away. Um, We have to work at this. This is an everyday thing because here's what I discovered. The moment I put the oars down for just a second to catch my breath, you know what happened? (laughs) I lost ground. In fact, like I lost ground fast. And in fact, I stopped facing the way I wanted to face. Like the the current turned me around sideways, which was not very good. Um, (laughs) Like it, Drift away is the right word there, isn't it? Um, Because if you let it, the current will always drift you away. Your flesh will always drift you away. Sin will always drift you away. Fight, fight, fight. And the moment you stop fighting, it'll drag you off. Um, And so it's an everyday deal. How am I supposed to do that? I'm going to get tired of it after a little while. You know what? It was weird. I never in the first year of being like dating and, and married and everything, I never got tired of doing nice things for my wife. Isn't that weird? I never got tired of sending her notes. I never got tired of kissing her. I never got tired of holding her hand. I never got tired of looking at her, right? Um, But it's weird how that changes, right? The moment you stop trying, the moment you get stressed out, the moment you get too much on your plate, the moment we talked about all of this last week, the tyranny of the urgent, right? I have to do this right now. And we think, oh, well, I'll do this right now. And slowly the current drags us off. We drift off. Um, And so first love is kind of the strength here. Like when we love God and we act out of our love for God, it is strong. Um, I have an analogy here. It's a little like a GTO. Right? 1965 GTO. Terry helped me nail down the year, and I really appreciate that. When I was about five years old, six years old maybe, my dad gave me a model GTO to build. And I remember being really disappointed because this car looked weak. It was a big box with wheels, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? The 1960s? I mean, it is square and nothing. And in fact, I remember my dad called it a goat. And I'm like, yeah, it looks like about as muscular as a goat. (laughs) And I don't even think I finished putting it together because it looked kind of lame. It might have been in the 80s when I was that age. It was probably later. Um, (laughs) But I remember thinking cars that looked fast were Trans Ams, right? But honestly, I'd take a GTO over Trans Am any day, right? Like, 
I, I remember thinking Corvettes looked strong, and I remember like that pointy shape triangle thing that cars did for a little while there. Um, but in reality, this love for God we have is a little like 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 that GTO. Um, it's beautiful in the sense, first off, is it's powerful, right? I never owned one. Terry, however, has told me lots of stories, and I'm very jealous. And the Williamses have one in one of their shops, and I sat in it once. I don't know if I was supposed to or not. <laughs> But I sit up late thinking about that. <laughs> um, it, I mean, you can you sit in this car and it feels powerful. I had a, I had a car in college that had a 460 engine, and I remember you would turn it on and it would it would hum like a tiger, you know that like purr, and it felt strong, like this first love that we have between us and God is powerful. It drives us to overcome stuff. Um, I remember there was a period of time, like I talk about it a lot, there was, there was this time in my life where I was, I was mired in sin and I couldn't get myself loose. And as hard as I tried, I couldn't fix it. And the, the day I started overcoming sin and changing and my life became different, I woke up in the middle of the night and I realized how far I drifted and that I, I was dying spiritually. And I laid in bed and for like six hours I begged God to make it right. And I said, God, I don't want anything but you. Like, I just want to be right with Jesus. That's all I want. That's all I want. If it wrecks my marriage to fix this, I'll do it. If it kills me to fix this, I'll do it. I just want Jesus. That's all I want. I want Jesus. I want this. I want this. And this first love in me kind of was rekindled. And it was powerful. I remember I walked on clouds for, for months after that, even though, like, I, I basically wrecked my life fixing everything. Like, I... I I came clean with my wife about a lot of stupid things I'd been doing, ways I'd lied to her over the years, and I, I shouldn't talk to me for like a month, you know, and I've never been so happy being in the doghouse. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Because I, I wanted to be right with Jesus, and I, I felt ashamed still, and I felt bad, and I felt guilty and all this, but I was becoming right again, and that power, it can carry us anywhere. Um, it'd be a little like being in that stream with a motorboat, Right? With a speedboat, with a <laughs> with a barge, you know, something with a powerful engine, a tugboat. Like I always think tugboats look really strong because they're all engine. You know what I mean? I think they drag giant boats. Uh, Song of Solomon puts it really well. Obviously, he's talking about romantic love, but it applies, right? Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as a grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many, many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Um, it's powerful. Like love is powerful and it's strong. And that love we have for God can drive us through all kinds of stuff. The realization Jesus carried my sins and died for me and loved me so much to make me right with God again. Like when that comes to heart as to how broken and sinful we are naturally, like there's power in that. It carries us through a great deal. It helps us overcome sin. It helps us stand up and run away when it's there. Helps us forgive people rather than hold on to anger and, and resentment. Like it is powerful. It's humble. Here's why I picked the 65 GTO and not like a Dodge Viper, even though, first off, I would not want a Dodge Viper because it's a Dodge. Um, the, <laughs> the, the GTO, I remember looking at it, and it looks like a big box, like a big box. But unfortunately, like you need to have a big box to put a 400 cubic inch engine in, right? It looks humble. But like, like the love that exists between us and God, like this love, 
it is humble. Like there's a humility to it. When we approach God, we come with a humility that is, that is unparalleled. Um, at any other time in our lives, there's a oh, – the app froze again. Sorry, guys. So let's start it over. And I will – we're back to the Bible in front of you. We're in the book of Luke. If I can find it. Ah, this is Luke chapter 7, 36 to 50. Um, so Jesus is at a dinner party, uh, which apparently he went to, which I'm guessing is part of him suffering for our sins. Um, when one of the... <laughs> when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So they would have these tables. They were big, round tables. And you would lay down with your feet facing away from the table because, like, like GTOs back then were horses, right? Like actual horses. And so the roads you walked on were, like, hot and dusty and covered in, in horse exhaust. Um, and so you would want your feet as far away from the table as possible because you're eating here, right? Um, so that he's reclined at the table with his feet sticking outward. Um, reclined at the table, a woman in the town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Um, As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She then wiped them with her hair, kissing them and poured perfume on them. Um, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have, heard you, I, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One of them owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Uh, neither of them had the money to pay him back. So we forgave the debts of both. Now, which of those men will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt to be forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her hair and wiped them, or with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And she did not give me, or you did not give me a kiss, which is a customary greeting in the ancient world, like it was a show of brotherhood or friendship or what have you. It was a big deal that you would kiss people when you meet them. Um, You did not give me a kiss, uh, but this woman from the time she has entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love is shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus t- said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now watch this. Um, what he's saying is, Simon, you're a good guy. But you're so good, you don't realize how bad you need me. Right? You don't realize how desperate your situation before the Father is because you think you're going to walk before him and be okay based on you. This woman knows, and she is desperate to like be forgiven. And, and she's come to me, and she's crying on me. And, and, I mean, can you, like, all right, so in the ancient world, for a woman to, like, they would keep their hair up and a lot of times covered. For a woman to uncover her hair or let it down would be a little like appearing naked in public, 
right? Like to give you a, a cultural like parallel, it was extremely humiliating for a woman to let her hair down in front of other people. For her to use her hair to dry his feet, like, I, I mean, just multiply it, right? Like her act of humility culturally is enormous, but she's doing it because she loves him that much. Because she is that desperate to show like her appreciation for the forgiveness she's received, for the ability to know God. Um, like real love is humble. It it breaks my heart when I talk to pastors who who can't admit that they sin. Or when I talk to believers who believe that they are better than, you know, I I am holy and I am good. In reality, I'm a Christian because I am wicked. And because I nine out of ten times I'm gonna fight and lose like my battle with the current and I need Jesus to pull me out of the water. I need Jesus to pull me forward. Like there's a humility to it um, that makes love between us and God like this first love powerful. And it, it's so easy to lose because we begin to think he and I have this nailed. Nope, he's got it nailed. Um, or it's very popular in Christian circles right now in Christianity in, in America today to make it all about me. Jesus came and died because I am that wonderful, right? Nope. He came and died for you because he is that wonderful and because he loves you despite who you are, despite our sin, despite our fallenness. And he has made us the apple of his eye because he loves us that much. Um, and we're humble and appreciated. That's something that, that in recent years I learned more and more. I am just not a very good husband. Um, and my wife hasn't heard me say it, so she can't prove I say it. Um, it might be on tape, uh, but I'm sure she won't listen to it. So um, I am perpetually humbled by the fact that my wife continues to put up with me, that she continues to forgive me. I'm humbled by the fact that Jesus loves me. I'm humbled by the fact that any of you people listen to me, honestly. Um, like, I, I'm grateful. And that, I mean, humility is powerful in that it puts us in a position where God like, will use us in great ways. Like, you cannot, will not be used in arrogance. Like, it's just, God doesn't share glory. Um, it's beautiful and it's hunger. So, I, the great analogy I read, um, wedding day, you know, like, like, I don't think, you know, you think of that first love moment, Arnold Schwarzenegger couldn't pull you apart. You know what I mean? Like, that first kiss, you know, it, it like, like, the building could catch fire and you're getting the I do and the kiss in, Right? Like, it is happening. Um, people could start shooting guns in the air, and you'd still get your first kiss in, um, hypothetically. Um, <laughs> the first love we have for God is, for Jesus, like, like when we're saved, is beautiful because it's hungry, because it desires to be close to him. Um, it desires to chase after him. This is, uh, Jesus has just fed the 5,000, and he says, listen, guys, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no place in God's kingdom. And everybody says, all right, well, you may be performing miracles, but you're clearly nuts. We're out of here. And everybody abandons him. And the 12 are the only ones left. And Jesus turns to him and says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Uh, Jesus asked the 12, and Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter turns to him and says, I, what else are we going to do? Like, you are it. You have what we want. We're staying, and, you know, that's it. Um, the, the passage I considered using at the end of John, um, Peter has been humiliated and has, like, offended Jesus, like, denied him and everything else. Jesus appears on shore 
while they're out fishing, and Peter realizes who he is and doesn't wait to bring the boat back. He jumps in and swims to him because he wants to be back to him that badly. Like, he's hungry to be close to him. This, right, this is it. This is that first love. We are hungry to be together. We're hungry to spend time together. Um, There are seven ways. I'm going to do these relatively quick. Seven ways that the flesh throws cold water on it, right? Like, like y'all are aware first love oftentimes gets doused. Like this, this passion we have for Jesus can easily get, you know, worn. And here are our ways. First off, it's like eating an elephant. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. It is not instant. It is a little bit. After a little bit. After a little bit. After a little bit. Um, you just can't eat the whole thing at once. It's why, like, and, and this is the way sin handles us. Sin will pick away at the little things. And it'll happen in little ways. And over time, we just drift. That's why we're called to you know, pay attention, be on it, because, because it happens in bits and pieces. It happens in tuxedos and evening gowns. I love this phrase. That's why I'm using it. Um, I know folks who dress up to worship because they are excited about looking their best for God. Right? I'm not saying everybody has to do that. Please don't hear me saying that. I, if that is the way folks worship, that is it, right? When I take my wife out on dates, I try to put on nice clothes. And I usually shave. And I usually put on cologne. And I usually brush my hair. And I try to look nice, right? Um, because I, I want to look my best for it because I love my wife. Um, however, the danger that can happen in relation to us and God is when the formality becomes the point rather than a vehicle for us encountering God, right? Um, I, I worked at a church once where uh, people got mad because uh, of the way somebody changed uh, the tune for Amazing Grace. We sang it to a different tune. and like, well, that's not how it's, that's not how it's played. That's, that's offensive to God that you did it that way. You know, well, that is... In fact, there's a whole branch of American Christianity that is insane. Um, I'm sorry, I... I can't say it nice. I, I don't know. Like that, that has grown to believe that the King James Version is more accurate than the original words written by the disciples. And if it's not written in the King James, in fact, they will translate the King James to other languages to spread the gospel. Not anything else. Not the Textus Recepticus that it's based on, but <laughs> the King James. And it's that formality has become something that they worship. Um, they, these are same folks who will say, if you do not show up to church in a shirt and tie, you are not honoring God. You are offending him, and we will kick you out. I, I've got friends who went to churches like that growing up. That's crazy. If formality becomes everything about our faith, if it's not faith, period. It becomes a lie. Um, Hebrews uh, says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably and with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Mind you, what he said here is, with reverence and awe, meaning excitement, meaning like we take it seriously, meaning it's a big deal. Not that we have to do it formally. Not that we have to do it, you know, this way or nothing else. Um, We have to do it right. We have to do it from our innermost being. But when we turn it into something that isn't that, that it's just a process we go through, our words we say, we throw it all away, and sin is slowly, and that's that habit. Sin will drag us into that. You watch me on Sunday mornings when I go long, like I am not this morning. I'm not apologizing for it either. Um, 
I get nervous, right? Because you got to fit God in this time period. Um, and that it's wrong. It's just wrong. I'm wrong. I'm deeply sinful in this regard. Um, I'm going to skip over that one. Uh, by sending us down rabbit trails. You all know what rabbit trails are, right? They go every which way. <laughs> they're, they're in our sermons. Um, <laughs> rabbit trails are when we chase after things that are not about Jesus, but we make them about Jesus. You know what I mean? Where, um, i got to think of a way to talk about this right. Um, where we, I, I had somebody, I, I've used this story a lot, but it is just the truth. I had somebody yell at me once on Christmas Eve about how cookies were served during Christmas Eve service. Like they called me on Christmas Eve to yell at me because cookies were served wrong in Christmas Eve service. Um, they weren't there. <laughs> but they were offended by it because this is a gospel issue. Nope, it's just not. Um, my father-in-law, I was listening to a, a Christian uh, hard, loud music band, the kind of thing that Jeremy listens to. Um, I, was, I was driving along. I had an album on that was loud and, and um, Christian. And my father-in-law, who I love dearly, Baptist pastor, was with me. He said, well, I don't see how this could be Christian. Like, I assume you get saved so that you can start listening to things that are, like, glorifying to God. <laughs> okay. Um, but this idea that certain things have to be culturally Christian or certain missions or jobs that we do have to be Christian. Um, I know folks who get lost in the idea that feeding the poor is what Christianity is about. No, it is a fruit that grows off the tree of Christianity. Um, serving poor people, taking care of the disadvantaged, protecting the innocent, the whole nine yards, that is not Christianity that is a fruit that hangs on that tree. It is a byproduct of following Jesus and being saved. Um, but those are rabbit trails we get stuck in, right? I am a Christian because I feed the poor. Nope. I had a guy tell me once, if you have two coats and you don't give one to the poor, you are a pagan. I was like, well, I mean, like, yeah, I guess I should take care of poor people and I shouldn't live in abundance all the time. But, like, I'm saved because I follow Jesus. And, and my heart dictates how I serve. I don't do it, you know, because otherwise I'll go to hell. Um, that's a rabbit trail. Uh, by turning sin into a cuddly pet. Um, having sin as a cuddly pet is like having a rattlesnake as a pet. It looks cute and wonderful, and you don't realize how big of a mistake it is until it bites you. <laughs> um, there are a lot of sins like this, where God is just okay with it, and it's just fine, right? Um, oh, man, Mark Twain wrote, I read Mark Twain's autobiography, half of it. It is way too long. Um, Volume 2. I read Volume 2 last year. And um, one of the things he talks about is uh, one of the Rockefeller sons. For a little while, he wrote Bible studies that were published in national newspapers. And he wrote a study on the rich young man. Now, Rockefeller, like this would have been during a time when people lived in crushing poverty. Like, I mean, it was a very, there were a lot of really poor people. This is a guy who literally was the rich man in Lazarus, right? Like where homeless people like, like, like looking for work hung out on his doorstep. You know, I mean, I mean, real serious, crazy wealth. And he wrote this, this study on the rich young man about how it's okay to have wealth, just as long as it's not your God and you don't love it more than you love God. And Twain, who is, who's an atheist, and I, I you know, whatever, um, Twain pointed out, hey, if you're writing about a sin that you're inclined to get into and you say, it's okay for me to have my sin, there might be a problem, right? Um, there are a lot of these. Gluttony. Like, 
Gluttony is okay. Um, C.S. Lewis, this is one that I realize increasingly I have struggled with, um, is the gluttony of experience. I have 10 different kinds of coffee in my cabinet right now. You know why? Because I might want this one today and I might want that one tomorrow. And that's okay. It's not gluttony because I'm not eating too much. Except it is because it's gluttony of choice, right? Like, and I can justify that in my head because God gave coffee to me to enjoy. It's proof God loves us. Um, and wants us to be happy and awake. Um, but in reality, I've turned that sin into a pet. Like I said, oh, God's okay with us. We do that with sex. We do it with, um, golly, we do it with almost everything. We find our pet sin and we make it okay. Um, I, I read a lot of times where, uh, where folks will pick out a scripture verse and they will do gymnastics to make it into, like, it says what I want it to say, right? It just says what I want it to say. Like, it doesn't matter what it says, I will figure out how to make it say, because it's, this is my pet sin and you can't have it. Um, and the more we make pet into this cuddly, it's not a big deal, like, the more we make sin into that kind of pet, like, the easier it is for us to lose that first love, because we've got something else we love. We've got something else we're chasing after. Um, we've got something that is taking the place of God in our hearts. By inflating our heads and shrinking our hearts, I know so much, so I am saved. It doesn't matter that I don't love anyone, I have no passion, I don't pray for anyone, and I gossip about everyone around me. I know more about the Bible than, than you know, anybody else in the room, right? Nope. Knowing a lot does not, does not equal like intimate relationship with God. It does not equal holiness. It does not part. It's important, mind you. We become arrogant in our knowledge. We become puffed up in our knowledge. But it is important to have because part of how we know God is by knowing him. Right? Like part of how we know God and we hear from him is by reading the scriptures. It's amazing how many times I have been praying and had a scripture verse come up to answer something. And it's like, oh, wow, God spoke to me through his word. Wow. Who would have thought that had ever happened? Um, If our hearts die, if we become soft-hearted, if all we harbor is bitterness and anger and resentment and everything else, if all we have is judgment for the people around us, like we look at him and we say, oh, well, you know how sinful you are. And we feel no pity and we feel no like hurt for God's like, like mourning over those, these people's like unrepentance. Like that, is, that is a huge deal. Like our heads get big, our hearts get small. Um, and the flesh throws cold water on our first love when that happens. Because then it's all about me and it's not about him. Um, the flesh gets us to do our own thing. Um, when we get distracted and we chase after things that are, that are otherwise, like that throws cold water, right? Um, I, I get up every morning and I, I go to the gym. And I, I spend about an hour reading before I go to the gym and I drink coffee. And it is an easy habit for me to say, I need to get my exercise in or I need to get my reading done. And so I'm going to skip over prayer time. These are my things. God will be okay with it, Right? I can skip over reading the word because I've got to finish this book um, so I can get my book count done, which is pointless. Um, we chase after our own stuff. This is what's important to me, so it must be important to God, is the lie. By hitting mute. Now watch this. You all have a mute button, right, for your TV? Most of us wish we had it for the neighbor or for the kids. Um, <laughs> no amens for that. Uh, or spouse, don't point. Um, the, by hitting mute, how do we hit mute on God? First off, we don't read. 
We don't listen. We don't pray. The moment anybody starts talking to us, we figure out what they're going to say. I, one of the worst things, I actually read a great essay on this, like about how I really wish I could forget every scripture verse I ever read so I could read them all over brand new. Because I'll start reading a scripture reference in a book and I'll be like, oh, I know that one and I'll skip past it, right? I don't reread it. I don't swallow it again. I don't digest it. I just, oh, I know that one. Let's go. Um, we hit mute when we stop listening or when we assume certain things or we um, immediately become like inflated in ourselves when we read something as opposed to being convicted by it. When we don't see the word as a mirror, but we see it as a club, um, this mutes. The other way this happens is when we stop talking. I think when I stopped bragging about how awesome my wife was, um, my, like that first love thing just tapered. Isn't that weird? I stopped talking about My wife's smile is one of the most amazing. I, she has the best smile. I mean, she does. She just, and what's cool about that is she, I think she paid for braces herself as a kid. Like, which, when I learned that, it was even better. It's like, man, you did this on purpose, and you worked hard to have it. That's awesome. Like, but I stopped talking about that at some point. Except right now, I guess. Um, When we stop talking about how amazing God is, how much Jesus loves us, how he died for us. Um, For me, in, in counseling, it's when I stop talking about the fact that Jesus is the solution to our problems, and I start resorting to the, the stuff I learned in school. Um... Because ultimately, that's it. I mean, we heal because of Jesus. We're made new because of Jesus. We're, like, forgiven because of Jesus because he died for us. And if we have faith in him, we're forgiven. Um, the major objective with fighting against sin, guys, is falling back in love with him. Man, that's hard. I've discovered one of the best ways to do that is to sit down with other believers on a regular basis and talk. And not just talk, because we all talk, Right? I mean, I could sit around and talk about, you know, how much I hate the mosquitoes. And I could sit around and talk about, but the reality is if I sit down and I talk about what is making me angry this week and how I, like, like am struggling with this and I'm trying to pray through it or about what is tempting me or about how much I appreciate that Jesus died for me or anything. I mean, when we talk with each other about, like, who we really are in relation to each other and in relation to God, like, there's, there's a fire that's kindled there. When we worship, Right? Now, honestly, how many of y'all, like, sometimes you listen to a song and you're like, I hate this song and I'm not singing along, or I hate the way he's playing this song, or I so much prefer it when Jimmy plays this one, because Jimmy doesn't play, but, you know, I'm using him as generic, but I like this song more when Nathan plays it. I like this song more when, any of y'all do that? Like, where we critique, we become the worship connoisseurs, and it becomes about feed my taste and not about worship Jesus who died for me? Or the hardest thing as a pastor, I know about ten different pastors who told me this, I hate listening to other people preach. You know why? Because I listen and I say, you know how I would do this different? You know how you're doing this wrong? You know why this is a dumb illustration? You know why this is, you know why you should have stopped talking by now because you're going way too long? You know how, I mean, it just, but it, suddenly I'm not hearing God. Like, but when we reach this point, we can put all that nonsense aside and we can listen to the spirit move and we can hear him talk and we can fill ourselves with that. Like, that's powerful. Another part of it is understanding our own sinfulness. Like, oh my gosh, I died spiritually when I, when I stopped paying attention to the fact that I sinned. When I lived and pretended that I was perfect, it killed me spiritually. I remember I used to drive to the next town to buy beer in case somebody from my church showed up. 
right? I don't drink anymore. Like I, 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 but like I used to do that. I'd go over there. You know, I'd, I'd only go and buy cigarettes in the middle of the night so I wouldn't run into anybody I knew. <laughs> it's crazy. Like, I was fake. Um, when we're fake in our faith, when we hide, when we pretend, when we do all of this stuff, and we say, if people knew the real me, they wouldn't like me anyway, so I have to pretend to be a Jesus person. There's no life in it. There's no love in it. There's no nothing. Um, my challenge for you guys over and over again is to look inside you and say, like, when I had this first love, what did it look like? When I was passionate, the times when I've been passionate about my faith in Christ, what did it look like? When I needed him more than anything, what did it look like? And how on earth do I get back there? Um, if you want more suggestions, you want to talk about how to do it, come talk to me. Um, I'm, I can't think of anything better in the whole world to do. Um, we're going to close in prayer, and I will let you all go. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us. I pray that you'd light the fire of first love in our hearts again, that you would help us to be passionate about you, to chase after you in everything that we are, to, to, to pour ourselves out for you, Lord. I, I, I know that there's nothing better in life than to have nothing but you. Um, and I know that everything in my life works better when you're over it. Help me to chase after that. And I pray that everyone who's here, the people who were convicted by this, the people who were were moved by this, Lord, that, that a fire would be lit in them to chase after you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.